Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. And Sanchez here as well. And uh, just in case you hadn't uh, checked in on our earlier podcast, uh, this is uh, Vernacular Games. And we're going to be talking about different subjects uh, in gaming from a developer's perspective. So, Sanchez, what's the subject today? Well, we neglected to bring our handy-dandy dice tray to check if it's a random number generator. So I guess we're just going to have to go with something else. Uh, so I guess today we'll talk about balance. Now, balance is a, a very, I want to say, tricky subject to talk about because a lot of people have very strong opinions about what it is or what's trying to be accomplished. Or, In particular, when you start talking about any specific game, the balance of that game, everyone has their own opinion on that. And that kind of brings a very interesting question. How does everybody have their own opinion on what it means for a game to be balanced? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point, right? Mm -hmm. Because... A lot of people, when you think about it, you know, everyone's varied, right? So everyone's going to have their own perspectives on things. But at the same time, it always feels like, but the game is the game. So obviously the balance should be the same for within it. Right. You'd think that, right? But when you ask people, you know, is this game balanced or not? Or what do you think is out of balance? Or when you go into a forum <laughs> for any especially competitive game. Oh, yeah. Everyone's going to be like, oh, man, pauldrons are too powerful. Super super shotguns are the most amazing thing ever. Buff my class. Oh, all yeah. Stuff. And and so you always get people saying, my class is too weak, and all of the other classes are too strong. The players of every single class are, are saying that. Um, so this brings up then this really interesting question of what is balance. And when I've thought about this topic in the past, and I wrote an article about it that's on our WordPress, um, I broke the idea into two concepts. Because when you look at the term balance... You're, you're actually looking from a definitional standpoint, English language-wise, at these two ideas of either something that is measuring two values, uh, like a scale, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or a teeter-totter is, is another excellent example. You know, so it's balanced if both things are of equal weight. Right. Right. Otherwise, it's out, it's out of balance. But then there's also this concept of not falling over, yeah. being able to stay upright. And so I kind of extrapolated these concepts into two ideas one of which I call the balance of power, and the other which I call balance of environment. So it's this idea of balance of power is when you're putting two things on that scale, and what you have is this sort of more objective measure, right? Because, like, number six is greater than number five. Right. And, you know, and so you're just like, well, obviously five's better, because it's bigger. I mean, mm -hmm. excuse me, five's not bigger than six. <laughs> it depends upon the way you're counting. Well, this is also true, and this actually brings us to um, one of the examples uh, that I've thought of with regards to it, um, actually. So, yeah, taking that concept of the scale, right? Mm -hmm. And so when, when we're thinking about balance, we're always thinking about comparing things, right? Yeah. But one of the big things is that, um, so say you have sword A and you have sword B. Well, what makes sword A better than sword B? Let's say sword B is uh, sword B is shorter than sword A. So obviously sword A is better mm -hmm. than sword B because it's longer. Yeah, and so we're like, well, that's more reach. Okay, so sword A is better than sword B. So they're out of balance because they're different. A is better than B. But let's take it from a slightly different approach. Um, so let's say that A and B are now inside of a system where Sword A is a tier 2 weapon, mm -hmm. and Sword B is a tier 1 weapon. And suddenly, we're actually in balance. Right. Like, this can be particularly seen when you look at uh, 
a weapon that the only difference between two weapons is how much damage they deal. And dealing more damage, usually better. So when you look at, say, sword, sword A and sword B, and the difference is one deals three damage per swing and the other deals five damage per swing, you're like, well, that's really horribly out of balance until you frame it as, well, sword B is sword plus one and the other's just sword, right? Right, right. And I mean... And you could take it even step further because you know, like right now we're we're carrying comparing the same thing to each other, mm -hmm. right? A sword. And, but it balance always gets dicey when you're looking at the concept of like you're comparing. Um, as Cienter has said in many uh, conversations, it's like when you're comparing apples to oranges. Uh, that's when balance becomes really tricky. Or worse, apples to like tomatoes. Yeah, we're both red, but they're very different. Yes, they are. But uh, some might even say one of those is a fruit, and then one of the other ones is maybe a fruit? No, people are still up in arms about that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a botanist. I think this has been established in a previous episode. Yes. So, considering that idea, I mean, let's say we take a sword, and now... Sword A, because it's obviously the better weapon of the two, as we stated in our previous our previous example, is the one that we're going to choose. And uh, suddenly an arrow, a bow and arrow, shows up. And like, well, this mm -hmm. is a weapon too, and we're going to be comparing the usefulness of either. Well, when you just look at it as a bow and arrow versus a sword, what makes one better than the other? It's not them objectively, but it's more what is the situation in which you're using them? Right. Like, to try to do an objective comparison, you have to pick something to be objective about, right? You can't... As soon as you add another thing to compare, your scale doesn't work anymore because your scale can only compare a value. Usually, like a traditional scale, it's weight, right? It doesn't determine how bright something is or how big something is. It just determines how heavy is something, right? So when you look at trying to compare balance of power from, from the standpoint of, like, how strong is this thing versus something else, you have to look at one thing. So in this example of a bow and a sword, range is something you can compare. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, the bow has way more range than the sword. But maybe the sword has a much faster attack rate. Maybe the arrow deals more damage per, or the bow deals more damage per arrow hit versus sword hit. But, like, you've got too many factors here. So, like, you can compare these things, but you're not really getting useful information out of that comparison by itself. It's too much in a vacuum. Yeah. So the thing that you have to, the next step you have to take is to go, well, what's the environment in which these these two weapons are interred? For instance, if the swordsman is right next to the archer, then uh, suddenly the sword is the bee's knees. It's super bananas. It's OP, man. But mm -hmm. if the archer is far away from the swordsman, suddenly the bow and arrow is the greatest thing ever. Right. But the thing that comes along with this is that concept of like, well, how often do these situations appear in the setting that these weapons are placed? Mm -hmm. Are you in close quarters all the time? Because if that's the case, then that bow and arrow is not going to do you too much good. Yeah, and then there's, you know, another idea. What if, say, the sword person has armor that gives them huge amounts of damage reduction against this damage type that the arrows deal, right? Yeah. Like... Arrows and swords often deal different types of damage. Yeah, and that changes, and that will change things because if the arrow can't even deal damage in the first place, then its no, its range advantage is basically null and void. Yeah, it's completely moot. 
And this is where the idea of balance of environment comes out. So the balance of environment is uh, another way of saying we're looking at the whole sum of where these things are taking place. You can't just vacuum compare things because it doesn't produce you useful information. It's non-actionable because you don't know what it means. And you have to look at the environment to give it context and meaning. And that's why I called it balance of environment or balance of experience is another term that I used. Both conveniently abbreviate to BOE. BOEE! Yeah. But this this idea then is... To really evaluate the balance, you have to examine the factors that go into what determines effectiveness, I guess, is, is a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's, it's you look at the idea of what are these for? How well do they achieve their purpose when considering yeah. the situations in which they are placed? Exactly. And so this is where everybody gets their different ideas from because everybody has a different perception. So there's a lot of things that go into this that make it kind of complicated to determine what balance actually is because things like player skill have a huge and phenomenal role in trying to determine this sort of evaluation. Because if, for example, in, in our example of swordsman versus ranger, bow, archer person, if the archer person is really good at kiting, that is running away, then they can keep that distance up and that mitigates the sword damage. That makes it not very good. Right, But if they're bad at running away, if they're not paying attention to their surroundings and they back into walls all the time or whatever, then the sword person is going to do well. But if the sword person is really effective at dodging arrows, then that makes the bow person way worse because it doesn't matter how close they are. They, can't, they can effectively render each other not able to deal damage, right? So you have a lot of skill that can be involved there. And this brings out a huge issue with trying to balance competitive environments versus non-competitive ones. Most definitely. There's, that's And that's actually a really big point is balancing a PvP environment as it would be standard, which is player versus player yeah. um, versus a PvE environment, which is player versus enemy. All of you World of Warcraft people out there, I think you, you have an idea of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. Um, this is a very different thing. A move that works really well in PvE when dealing with enemy AI ha will may not work so well against uh, a player. Moreover, the idea of what is a fun experience for a player changes drastically when you're no longer, uh, when you have to consider when this player is feeling good about what they did, how what they did affects the other player's um, right. feeling on that experience. Really good example of this is any sort of thing that prevents... Uh, actions from being able to be taken, right? That tends to be really awful if you get stuck in it, especially if that just keeps repeatedly happening. A lot of games have uh, a knockdown effect in them, right, as uh, something to hamper the player from being able to do something because they're not allowed to do something until they get back up. And so any sort of game that allows that to happen again and again and again, well, you can feel pretty great about it when you're the player preventing the other thing, the other entity from acting, and if it's just the AI, who cares, right? That doesn't matter. Maybe it makes your game easier than you intended. And see two podcasts ago for our difficulty talk. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, robots don't have feelings yet. Exactly. So. <laughs> but if you're doing that in a competitive game, then you're just denying a person the ability to play. That's not a lot of fun for the person who's not getting to play. They need an opening and an out, some way of being able to feel like they have agency. Yeah, because, I mean... Certainly in uh, player versus player, one of the important things to remember is that it is about both players essentially having a conversation, right? It's yeah. Like that idea that they're like, I want to do this. Well, I want to do this. Well, I'm going to stop you. Well, I'm going to do this. 
counter, counter, counter. You know, lots of lots of decisions made with respect mm-hmm. to each other. Um, as soon as you take away that decision-making process, it becomes a more um, NPE, or as they say, negative play experience. Right, and the neg- negative play experience is uh, one of the big things that often drives people out of competitive games. Balancing for competitive games, then, or balancing the environment, becomes very difficult because you have such a lesser margin of error. There's so many more ways that things can create a negative play experience for one of the players. And some of the tools that you have for balancing that are available to you in a player versus environment or PvE setting are no longer available to you in a competitive setting. Things like scarcity or things being secrets or being rare drops or a rare loot or whatever. These are no longer things that you can use. You have to assume the player has everything. Now, a lot of dedicated versus games, like fighting games, this isn't going to be an issue. But in, to some extent, MMOs, depending upon how they're set up, and especially a really good example of this is Dark Souls 2, you can really see this come to light. So in Dark Souls 2, there is uh, a weapon called Santir Spear. And this is kind of a really neat, from a PvE standpoint, weapon. It's a secret, right? It's hidden in an optional area behind a door that requires a, an item to open. Um, there's, there's basically keys, sort of generic keys, that you can find, and this requires at least one of those to open to be able to get to. And then there's an enemy back there, and you get past him, and you open a treasure chest. There's Santier's Spear. When you look at Santier's Spear, it's a spear impaled on a stone head. Yeah, it's a giant sculpture of a head yeah. on, a, on a spear, and you're just like... What am I going to use this for? Right. And and when you look at it, there is one thing that might take you as a little surprised. Now, its moveset is kind of clunky, but for some reason it has a lot of durability. Like, multiple times more than the average durability in that game. Like, five times more. Right? Which is like, that's weird. And, well, almost ten times more, actually, come to think of it. But if you wear through all of that durability, and it breaks, what happens is the statue head falls off. And now you've got a completely different weapon, and it has a very versatile move set with a lot of different things going on. And what ended up happening is this was considered like one of the better, if not the best, weapons to use in PvP, because Dark Souls 2 has PvP as well as PvE, so it has both, right? And any game that has both, especially where you share resources between them, is open to this issue. And so Santier Spear is a secret weapon. You have to find it, like I said, in an optional area behind a door that you might not want to spend the resources to open because you you have limited access to these things, to open things. Yeah. And behind an enemy you might not want to fight because it's a relatively big, bulky, dangerous enemy. And then when you get it, it just seems like a clunker of a weapon. Yeah, there's basically three layers of obfuscation as far as whether or not you're going to actually grab this thing. But at the same time, it's when when you enter into that PvP environment, it suddenly becomes... Any any amount of knowledge blocker becomes almost almost null. Yeah. So this weapon, you couldn't it being really effective because it was super secret. Like uh, Redcoat was saying, you have you have to go to the optional area, spend the resource to open it, get the item, break it, which is hard because it has so much durability, and your durability automatically resets so often in that game mm-hmm. that you have to be really intentional about breaking it, basically. Yeah. To get this great weapon like that's a lot that that really is a lot it's a lot to do and i mean uh for some players when they look at the when they look at that pvp situation they're like well this is the accepted best weapon or such a thing and they'll they'll look at everything that they need to do to get it they won't think of that as a 
as an interesting part of the experience. Exactly. It robs some of the PvE experience also. Yeah, because right. it, it makes them think of it as a chore, like this thing that they have to do to get to the game that they want to play. Yeah, and that's actually that's a, a different topic, so we won't delve into it. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of hurdles that stand in the way of being able to do what you want to do, we usually call that grind. So Santier Spear is an excellent example. It was a secret. It was rare. Like It is a sort of secretness, right? And that did not prevent it from being used widely in PvP because that knowledge gets out there. Yeah. Right? The, the player who's going to do that is going to be more likely to look things up online, more likely to, to get involved in, in that way. And they're more likely to find this stuff and, and make use of it. And that leaves this sort of balancing mechanism unusable. And there's another example, um, just while on Dark Souls 2, of how this sort of, you lose tools for balancing. And it also brings up the idea of how much skill impacts things. Yeah. So magic in the game is in this really weird spot where players who know how to dodge stuff effectively and have good awareness and that sort of thing... Magic is really, really hard to use effectively on them because it's just so easy to roll through almost all of it. Yeah. So being able to effectively hit with magic needs to have a good payoff at that level of play. The problem is, at lower levels of play, that payoff is disproportional because players are not either good enough at dodging things well, so they don't have good timing, or they don't have good observation skills to notice things coming. I saw that a lot about some skills I'm uh, about to talk about. And so... Magic had a disproportionate reward at lower skill levels compared to where it did at high skill levels. And it's it should be noted that um, with Dark Souls' actual spread of audience, there was actually a very large swath of players across the board of skill levels. Yeah, absolutely. So there's these, these spells. Uh, Great Resonant Soul uh, is kind of the, the most popular one. There's a similar one called Climax, which everybody made jokes about. Mm-hmm. Um, they work basically similarly. The idea is that they consume a sum amount of your souls, which is basically your your currency. Yeah. They basically took your money, right? And and that would power up the spell. So if it didn't have enough of your money to consume, it was weaker. But it would eat through a chunk of your money and would do a lot of damage. And there's some additional equipment that you could get that further boosted the damage. And it was a fairly quick cast, fairly blah projectile, by which I mean is kind of a dark blob. Yeah. Um. So people found that hard to see. And this is where that, that awareness comes in. So it consumes resources, right? That's kind of falls into that scarcity thing. Yeah. And and a psychological thing where players don't want to spend their resources in this sort of way, where you're just spending them and you're not getting them... They're not adding to anything that you have, right? You're just losing them. Yeah, you're not investing them. You're just spending them. Right. So players would rather do things like put them into their levels, for example, because you basically bought levels in that game. Because of the way that this sort of psychological... Uh, psychologically works and and those sorts of things you get this phenomenon where these were really powerful in pvp and frankly they're they're, they were really powerful in pve as well but players didn't necessarily want to use them especially uh, a certain level of player yeah a certain type of player and you you can see parallels of that in, in other games as well where players want to try to preserve their resources as much as possible instead of knowing how to use them well. But oh yeah, I mean that's that's items in almost any RPG. Yeah. Uh, just any. How many potions do you have in your stock right now? Is your is your item packet full? Is the answer the maximum number? Yeah, it usually is. Can you pick up more? No. Can no. you put more bicycles into your into your computer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's also another another thing that can happen that's 
pacing can also change between PvE and PvP. And a prime example of this is Pokemon. Oh, yes, most definitely. Um, Pokemon, uh, uh, myself and Santir, we've played the games for, well, quite some time. And in very different very different scenarios, like both the competitive and the uh, and the player versus enemy sector. Yeah. Over a decade, I'd say. Yeah. Um, big game. They came, I, out, they came out in 98. Yeah. Man, I feel old now. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the interesting thing about Pokemon is... Well, there's a couple of things about the pacing for the game because when you enter into a, let's say, a PVE situation in that game, mm-hmm. um, you you're expecting to run into several of them over the course of time, right? You know, yeah. Like I'm on my way over to insert town name here. Um, we'll go with uh, Cerulean. I was just thinking that. Yeah, yeah, great minds. Um, but yeah, so we're going to a town and we're going through the tall grass. And you're probably going to fight like six six or seven Rattatatas. Oh, wait. I don't remember what was on the way, but we'll say they're Rattatas. Probably Rattatas and Pidgeys. Yeah. They're everywhere. Gen 1's been a while. Yeah. And uh, and you're like, okay, sweet. I'll hit the, these like three times and they're they're dead. And you're more, you're more worried about how much energy you have to use your stuff rather than how well you're going to use it. Because on the one hand, you know that you're going to be out-leveling these soon. Um, you'll be able to just beat them up like that um, really easily. Yeah, just smash through them. Whereas when you're in a PvP situation, you're generally expected to be at about the same level as your opponent. Auto level 50 all, pretty popular. Yeah, well, I loved it. Uh, and you're, what's going to be happening is um, instead of really just choosing the thing that you feel like you're going to destroy them quick, most quickly enough with, you're trying to try and figure out how to win the match. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I think, Santa, you've got a pretty good example on this part. Well, so there's a a move called Stealth Rocks. What it does, uh, to, to give you, for anybody who has not played Pokemon, the it is a turn-based RPG where typing matters a great deal. So uh, each character in each Pokemon has one to two types, and these types have weaknesses and strengths to the other types. So moves are always typed. So it, attack moves have a very strong multiplier attached to them. They're, they either, uh, and this is where super effective comes in, super effective moves are dealing multiples of two. Yeah, so, two times damage. Yeah, two or four times damage, uh, eight in some situations. Yeah, rare situations, but man, those things die hard. Yeah, then you're gone. Um, and then, conversely, when you resist something so it's not very effective, it's halved, quartered, eighthed, that sort of thing. So it yeah. goes the, the other direction. And Stealth Rocks is a move that says whenever you bring out a Pokemon into the field of battle, it takes damage proportional to, what is it, like a 16th of its max HP? Yeah, it's a 16th of its max HP with some modifiers. But the type modifiers go apply, so it's, it's a rock-type move. So there's things like fire and bug and, and flying. flying that are weak to this. There's a lot of fire flying and a lot more bug flying Pokemon. So there, there are two types. So they're both weak to it, and the way that the math ends up working, again, I don't remember the base damage for Stealth Rocks exactly, but that multiplier ends up working out to half of their max HP when they come into, into play. So that's a huge chunk, right? The thing is, this move is specifically punishing a lot of switching, and it punishes certain types with a lot of switching very powerfully, which has a huge impact on the PvP environment. It just really dictates what Pokemon are good. Yeah, like the the whole the whole tier list of po- uh, in the later versions of Pokemon 
whether you were weak to stealth rocks or not was a huge bump. It would raise you at least one to two tiers just right there. Yeah, it can it can hurt so much to be weak to it. In PvE, the move is nigh useless. And so it's like, wow, how can this move that is so dominant, so format warping and defining in PvP be near useless in PvE and is pacing? So, first of all, the AI, if they have an additional Pokemon, which is only on a trainer, not wild Pokemon, might have one or two additional Pokemon, so two or three Pokemon total. It's rare that you get much more than that, and that's usually for boss characters. And they usually aren't switching they're just bringing out the next one once you faint the previous one. Yeah, it's actually really rare for them to do that. I think it was like the re- the most, the latest games they started doing that and not, not all that often. No, not very often at all. And so what you run into is this move is not accumulating you very much damage over the course of a PvE match. The other thing in PvE is you're usually out-leveling your opponent. So what you're focused on is you're focused on all of these moves in PvE that are, here's damage, here's more damage, here's also more damage. But in PvP, what you run into is things like Stealth Rocks will accumulate you a lot of damage and a lot of advantage over the course of a match. You run into this this sort of dichotomy, where this move, because of the environment in PvP, this move, Stealth Rocks, is extremely powerful. But in PvE, because of the environment and the pacing and all of those sorts of things, it's near useless, because you're wasting your time. Yeah, and that's uh, that's actually a very... Big thing. Actually, on the topic of RPG systems and uh, some, imba- um, some, some imbalances within them, um, using po- uh, actually using Pokemon as a comparison for some other things, mm-hmm. um, I actually wanted to hit on the subject of healing uh, in, mm. uh, in most RPG systems. Uh, it's a very common thing uh, in, in these games that you'll have, you'll have that character who that's their specialty, right? Right. They're the only character that does it. Yep. And so what does this do to your to your party, right? Locks in a slot. It basically says, you might have seven other characters that you can use, but there's one character that you will always, always, always have in your party. Yep. Uh, because the healing concept just, it changes everything. Um, and this is interesting when compared to Pokemon in particular, because healing in of itself is this really limited thing, but it can come in some places on certain pokes, and it's just the pacing of the game is very different. It's a very offensive game. Yeah. Right? You don't heal, you just kill the other Pokemon, faint them, before they can hit you back, right? Right. Especially in PvE. Yeah, it's very, it's very much more of a... The game is much more focused on how do you deal with your opponent more quickly than um, how do I outlast my opponent. Now, there are strategies around this in that game, but they're still very different, and oftentimes you're not going to see the same... Well, in the earlier versions of the game, I should say, you're not going to see the same tank all the time. Yeah. Well, and one of the big differences that Pokemon has is you only have one Pokemon out at a time, and the rest are... They're available to be switched out, but you have six on your team at any time, but only one is active, right? In a lot of other RPGs, you have two, three, four, usually around four characters active at once. So healing takes on a very different flavor that way. Yeah, it becomes this thing of where you always have the option to have them there, so why wouldn't you? Right, versus where Pokemon, having a healer out and doing their healing thing means that you don't have an offense out, right? And that's a huge handicap. And so you have to weigh the healing versus the uh, the offense. And 
and other RPGs then don't do that. And so the healing, the game is based around you having a healer there. And when you always assume that a healer is going to be there, a healer always has to be there. Because if you don't assume that a healer is going to be there, then the healer is going to make the party basically invulnerable. Yeah, that's one of the things with balance of environment. I mean, with a lot of RPGs, the concept is... I mean, as we stated before, your healer is usually a locked slot. Yeah. Um, well, like, for anybody who's played Tales of Symphonia, the healer, Rain. Yeah. When did you ever go out with your party without Rain in it? When she wasn't available. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, you needed that because the ability to reverse your mistakes is it's really, really useful. Um, it's also very unique. Um, for that, in that game, it was a unique ability. Yeah, I think first aid, basically, the weakest healing skill was maybe available on a couple of other characters, but... Yeah, like, and it was interesting moving through the Tales of series uh, in particular, because as we moved through the games, they started taking a few more chances with um, how they distributed the healing mm. um, and just how they dealt with it. By the time we got to Vesperia, most of the cast... Uh, about half of the cast actually had healing abilities, some of which could actually turn out to be really good. Granted, there was still a de facto healer character mm -hmm. um, in, in Estelle, and so much as that's just kind of what she did. She was good at other... She could combat. They were starting to play around with making sure that everyone could fight, mm. um, which, when they got to Grace's, they made a really good move there but in any case it's still that idea of this is um this particular idea when, when we're looking at balance of environment is the idea of the balance of the options that you're that you're providing to your player right and this is kind of leads into a very key point you can give your player a toolbox and the question then is do they have a reason to put any of the tools so so to build up this metaphor a little bit better they have a tool belt, right? Those are the tools that they immediately have with them. And then they have a tool chest, which is one of those big, enormous wheeled things with a bajillion tools in it, right? And so the question as a designer is, you bring out this tool chest, right? And you're like, here are the options of all the tools you have available to you, but you can only bring so many on your belt at a time. And so what the player then has to do is they have to pick what tools do they think they're going to need? Are they going to need a screwdriver? Are they going to need a hammer? Probably. Are they going to need a saw? Maybe not. Are they going to need um, a belt sander? Really unlikely. So they have to kind of pick and choose what tools do they think they're going to need with them. And so the question then becomes, Are there anything? Uh, is there anything in the chest that they're never taking out to put on their tool belt? Mm -hmm. And is there anything on the tool belt that they're never putting back in the chest? Yes. And one of the things that follows along with that metaphor also is, and what job are they going out to do? Yeah. And, and you also have to ask yourself the question, and this is a really important one, are you okay with them never taking stuff off of their tool belt? Yes, this is actually really key. Um, and this actually brings us to one of the, one, another key point of balance, which is um, developer intention. Mm -hmm. uh, because as, a, as the designer of your product, you have to make a decision about what do I want to see the players doing? Exactly. And then are the players doing that? Just going back to that sort of competition for slots, as it were, or um, tool space, right? Uh, Guild Wars 1 is very interesting to look at this way because there is a concept in that game uh, of, your, of your skill bar. So to give a little bit of an idea of how this game works, 
um, mechanically. You have eight skill slots. That's it. Eight and exactly eight. No more, no less. And you have then two classes that you can pick from. Your main class and your secondary class. Secondary class, um, the way the builds worked is you had these attributes that you could put points into. And it scaled how many points it took to get to the next level of uh, an attribute. So the first one took one point, then two points for two, and then three for three. And it kind of climbed up until it was taking a bunch of points. So you had a limited number of points. So you could only get your attributes up so high, and attributes dictated how strong your skills were. So you have eight skills. You have to figure out which ones you want to bring based upon what attributes you want to use. Um, the attributes generally only made your skills better. And what secondary class you wanted to use. So there's a concept of an elite skill. And what an elite skill was, it was... A variety of things. Generally, it was either a very powerful unique effect, or it was what was referred to as bar compression, which basically meant it could serve the role of multiple skills simultaneously, or it was just a more efficient version of another skill, uh, so it was more of an upgrade that could work as an additional copy or that sort of thing. And you could only have one elite skill on your bar at a time. That led to some very interesting things. Um, there are some builds that did not ha require an elite skill to be able to function. These would be builds that give you a lot of flexibility in what elite skill to bring. Um, there are some builds that are based around an elite skill, and that would require you to bring that elite skill to be able to do that build. And if you didn't have that elite skill, you'd have to go get it. And then there's this also this concept of some roles there are elite only a handful of elite skills that are any good for. And this came up most often, as we talked about previously, with the dedicated healer. Mm -hmm. So what what you found, they called it a monk because they were going for a different sort of take on what a monk is. Um, a lot of monks in games are fisty, punchy things. These are more spiritual healer type profession. Um, technically, they had an offensive attribute line. It wasn't, for the most part, very good, except for the parts where it was broken. Um, but that's not what this discussion is about. Um, this discussion is about the narrowness of monk elite skills. So... What you really needed out of your elite skills, you needed the effect to be really, really powerful, because if it wasn't, you'd just pick one of the ones where the effect was really powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a tautological statement, but yeah. monk energy bars, or mana, uh, basically, um, were very highly pressured. They were trying to do a lot. So they needed their elite skill to do a lot for them whenever they used it. So a 10 energy elite skill was really expensive. Um, energy costs usually came in the increments of 5, 10, 15... And 25, I don't know why they skipped 20. I think it was a mistake, but that's me personally. Um, so the setup meant that if it was not a 5 energy elite skill, it's really hard to argue to run it. There were maybe an exception or two, but the result of this is that you might have a bunch of elite skills that are available, but you can never take them out of your toolbox, no matter how interesting they might be, because they just don't perform up to the efficiency, the effectiveness level. And so as a designer, I'm looking at all of these monkey elite skills, and I'm like, aw, tier, because we can't use any of them. It's like, this one's really cool. And it's like, yeah, it is. There's no way you can actually use it, because you don't have room. You need to bring Word of Healing, which was considered kind of one of the premier healing skills, right? Yeah. And uh, thinking on that, actually, just that concept of... Um... Well, actually, we'll get, to, we'll get to that in the next part. Continue, continue. Okay. Well, I, I kind of want to, to go from there and segue into um, an, another concept 
which um, is one that I've learned a lot about from studying Magic the Gathering and, and writings there. Uh, again, Mark Rosewater, fantastic design writing, is this concept of release valves. So what a release valve is, is it's something that releases the pressure that gets developed when a strategy is too good, when it's too dominant and people can't figure out how to make something that can combat it. So a release valve is a tool that you provide in your tool chest that you really don't know if it's going to ever get taken out of the tool chest or not, but you want it there just just in case they need to use it to be able to combat something that you accidentally made too strong. Yeah, and it actually should be noted that this is this uh, this kind of idea comes with the idea that your your tool chest is actually shifting. Okay? Yeah, you you get new tools um, it, on a fairly regular basis. It doesn't have to, but it, that's it's. It's this idea of this awareness of what strategies are you making and what ends up being good. So the example that I want from Guild Wars 1 is there, there's a concept of a hex. So there's two debuffs in the game, conditions which are very easy to remove, relatively speaking, and hexes which are hard to remove. Most professionals could remove conditions. Most professionals could not remove hexes. So there were several hexes that just provided some damage over time in an area of effect. So they'd afflict people who have an area of effect, put a debuff on them, and then damage over time. So the idea here is that it's a pressure strategy, and this is PvP that I'm talking about here. And so this strategy was put a bunch of degen on everybody, and they slowly die. Because your monks are like, I can't keep them up. I can't take all the hexes off. There's too many hexes. So there's a monk elite skill that was completely useless called withdraw hexes. First of all, it's 15 energy, which is far too much. It also could probably have stood with a faster casting time. But the real kicker was the recharge. It was like five seconds. But the effect is it removes all hexes from allies in an AoE. That's right, all of them. And then takes longer to recharge for each hex removed. And the effect of this, if you were to use that, what you would think would be good against one of these hex-based builds, hex-based team builds, you would use it once, and then you'd have to sit there staring at your watch for approximately two minutes, waiting for it to recharge. Um... This doesn't make it a useful skill against hexes. This makes it a useless skill against hexes. Now, if they had designed it the opposite way around, where it had like a minute recharge, or even 90 second recharge or something, um, which is quite long in that game, like extraordinarily long, but made it decrease in recharge time for each hex removed, it would have been an amazing tool against these hex-based builds. And it makes a very interesting impact on the environment, because what happens is you remove all of these hexes, your skill instantly recharges because you removed all these hexes, and then what happens? That team has lost so much of their work, right? And you've, like, done it so simply. But if somebody is not relying on hexes, you have a skill that's basically useless. And it also should be noted with that particular that particular implementation of the skill that... Um, the hexers can try and do things to uh, to combat it. Yeah, they can try to play around it exactly, and that's that's the kind of interaction. That's one of the kinds of interactions that you really want to look for in a PvP situation. Yeah. So what that does is it acts as a release valve. Instead of saying, "Oh, hexes are too strong. I guess we have to make them weaker," you can go, "Well, maybe if we make the tools that are really good against hexes way better." Yeah. We make them better. And you know the hexers still have to play around them, like because we still want that we still want hexers to play the game. Exactly. Um, well, so. and then then you have this rock paper scissors scenario where if hexes get too strong, withdraw hexes comes out, 
destroys hex teams, especially bad ones, mm-hmm. which is really what you want to stop. You want to stop the massive numbers of them. Yeah, you want uh, you want the you want the hex teams to be like. Well, after a fashion, you want the hex teams to be kind of like well known for being good at be- doing this stuff. Right, they have to do it well, and then when too many teams are relying on draw hexes, these teams that don't rely on hexes suddenly become way more powerful because the monk has given up an elite skill slot to withdraw hexes, guys. Yeah, and that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, thinking about that um, that concept there, because I mean. Uh, as you as you stated, this was some um, this particular idea, the release valve, uh, a Mark Rosewater idea, or at least one that I saw introduced in the context of Magic. Yes, and it's greatly used in card games in general. Um, really, it's um, that idea that well, um, obviously with uh, with a game like Guild Wars, it's not quite as it's not quite as a um, let's say a fluid environment as what we see in card games for sure. Uh, they update skills pretty regularly, but it was not nearly as much churn as a card game sees. Uh, yeah, um, and so one of the things with the one of the things with uh, with release valves in the card game is that idea that you can make something that's really powerful um, with the within the context of the of the set of cards that you have um, that it comes out with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really um, that's a really important. Uh, that's a really important distinction because you could have a card that it doesn't have a deck to live in, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Where uh, it would be would have been really powerful, say two sets ago. If we're if we're thinking like in because in in your average card game you have this idea of rotation of where right. um, each every few months or every few sessions, let's say. You get um, you get a new set of things, uh, a new set of tools added to your box, and another set of tools uh, pulled out of the box. We're changing drawers. Yeah, basically. And um, what's interesting about the the card game in general as a medium is that idea that a part of playing a card game is figuring out the um, what cards are capable of. Yeah, particularly in that given environment as well. It's happened so much, and what you were just talking about, where you look at a card and you're like, this card seems really amazing. It would have been amazing two sets ago before this set came out, but it has no home. Yeah, and this is something that, uh, it's a very interesting thing, because the variant, the variance in the, in the idea of the card game, especially when you consider that the very item that you're using to play against your, your opponent is 60, se- uh, 60 items pulled out of a set of, what would you say, like 300, 500? Um, I believe several hundred anyway. Let's go with that. Yeah. Pulled out of a set of a lot. Um, this means there's a ton of different ideas and concepts um, that any given player could figure out and, uh, and decide, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, and, and the, that hits up an interesting point also, because there's a lot of complaints in card games about bad cards, right? Yeah. And temporally proximitous to when I'm when we're recording this, uh, Mark Rosewater's released a couple of podcasts himself on the topic of bad cards, and they're, they're an interesting to listen to. But one of the things that he says, he doesn't really necessarily like the term bad card per se versus a card that I have no reason to play. Mm-hmm. But it's there's this idea that he talked about so I'm just going to parrot him because I think he knows what he's talking about here, of each set that comes out, and you have multiple sets that you're playing with at any given time, 
generally will have its own version of a staple effect, right? Magic contacts, you have your direct damage spell that deals damage to things. Yeah. And if every set has its kind of its own take on it, not necessarily all of those are going to be good enough to see tournament play. Like, by the sheer number of them, if that effect is good in tournament play, then the best, most effective ones of those are the ones that are going to rise to the top. And they literally are not able to make all of them at that spot. They could make it so that way it's flatter, but there's still going to be the one that is most effective in the deck that wants that effect, right? Yeah. So the most you could hope for is maybe a couple of decks want that effect, and there's a couple of different cards that have it, and each deck that wants that effect wants a different one of those cards. And that's like the best sort of most diverse use of cards that you're going to get, but for any given deck, there's generally going to be only a handful of cards for a given effect that are good enough for that deck, for that environment. But yeah, this actually also brings up um, brings up another concept, which when we're looking at uh, looking at the PvP sector, uh, and this is in um, a a much more static environment, mm -hmm. um, the the fighting game. Yeah, fighting games up till now, with a few market exceptions, um, they don't really have release valves per se. No. Well, and. We were just talking about how in card games, you can change and optimize your tool set that you're bringing with you in your deck, but right. fighting games don't let you do that. Yeah, generally speaking, if your character is bad at dealing with projectiles, there's not much you can do about that. It's just play better, basically. And so if projectiles are really, really good in that game, you're hosed. Yeah, if... And this, is, this comes down to another matter of environment, right? If you're in a game where... Shooting your opponent uh, where everyone has guns. <laughs> um, I'm, this is actually going to a, a little bit of an obscure one. But if you're in Gundam Battle Assault, uh, and you're uh, and most characters have laser weaponry or uh, machine guns, because this is basically a mobile suit fighting game. It's 2D. Mm -hmm. um, you've got like Wing Gundam and Zakus and stuff like that fighting each other. Sure. Uh, and you're, uh, you decide uh, to choose the character named Ball, uh, who, he has a laser cannon, but it only has five shots, and he doesn't, he can't really do damage, he doesn't really have a response to the other person's laser fire, um, all sorts of things that can go wrong for this character, but there, the character is Ball, you made your choice at the, at the character select screen, you knew what you were getting into, so you just kind of had to deal with it, kind of deal. Yeah. And this happens in most fighting games, where there's a character that either... They could even have a really diverse move set, but they're missing... Or a tool set, but they're missing a really important tool to that environment. Or even they just have a limited one, and they're missing, like, some... They're missing some specific special sauce. Yeah. That, that one thing that... That brings it all together. As you can have a character that has um, a, a general concept of these are the, all of the things that I'm trying to do, but it doesn't come together into what does this character do. Uh, the example that comes to mind is actually in Soul Calibur 2. Hmm. Um, so in Soul Calibur 2, you, uh, this is arguably one of my favorite design fighting games in general. There's a lot of stuff that they did really well in the game, uh, much a very healthy rhythm uh, in the tit-for-tat. But that's a, that's a particular subject for another time. But the general idea is, 
in Soul Calibur, everyone's kind of defined by the sorts of weapons that they use, right? Sure. So you got characters like Nightmare, who he has this big, huge sword, and he's swinging it around, and he's using the momentum. Is it slow? It's it's very slow, but... What a shock. Yeah. It's slow, but it flows. It's got mm. this really nice thing of momentum going with it, mm-hmm. where once he starts going, you're really afraid to put your sword in there. Um, and that was a really interesting concept um, for that character. That was what he did. And then you have Astroth, who is another, I've got a giant weapon, I'm going to sling it character. But he doesn't do the flow thing. He just hits you really hard. And, you know, that's just kind of what he does. He has a really good amount of reach, and he hits really hard. Um, he's slow, so that's what you have to deal with as a player. Um, so all of the characters have little little defining elements about them. Yeah. Like, you know, Max is a mix-up master. Ivy's got range and speed. Killick also has range and speed, but variability. So then you get to the sad character. His name was Yoon-sung. Not Sad Panda? No. Although he did wear black and white on his pants. There you um, go. <laughs> eh. So he used a, a Chinese sword, which... There was another character in the game who used a Chinese sword who admittedly was much better than him, partially because she came before him um, for various reasons. Mm. So he had, a, he had a Chinese sword, and his big problem was that he didn't have anything he specialized in. He didn't have more range. Um, when compared to Mitsurugi, he had less range than him, and Mitsurugi was your average character. Okay. This is kind of your Ryu or Ken sort of. Yeah. He had less range, a little bit less damage, maybe slightly faster. But not fast enough to deal with your uh, not fast enough to deal with your speedier characters like Sophia or Talim, um, so they would beat him in that in that area. Um, he wasn't strong enough to really deal. Um, he wasn't really that much stronger than our average character, and so certainly he wasn't going to beat any of the stronger characters in that area. Yeah, for sure. Um, like Nightmare was just going to eat him for breakfast as far as damage if they got into a hitting match. And when we looked at Reach, it was still the same issue. So. The problem was that he had nowhere to live as far as what his strategies were, what it was he needed to do as a character to to fight the opponents. I mean, even Maxi, who was admittedly in a similar area where he had less rain, less range than your average character, less speed than your speedsters, he still had this mix-up game going on where he would just get in your head and beat you that way. Mm-hmm. It brings up this interesting concept of the average character, right? And usually what happens with the average character is they don't stand out in anything, but that means that unless the game is specifically designed so that their lack of an explicit weakness is a really powerful strength, and most games are not designed this way, then the average character is just left behind because everybody else outcompetes them in anything that they can try to do, and they don't have a recourse, right? And so either you have to set up the game where not being explicitly awful at something is actually an advantage, or the average character has to actually be above average in everything, just no peaks, right? Yeah, because that that actually makes me think of the implementation of Mario in the most recent Smash game, actually. Mm -hmm. Because in the previous games, he kind of fell by the wayside, because, I mean, he was the the middle-of-the-road character, and it was very, very clear. But... In Smash 4, he got a really... he First off, he got a very tricky tool set, so he could be very variable. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, 
he was in this specific spot where um, if we were on a five-star scale, he was always three and a half. He mm. was just slightly better than average, which meant that at any given in any given fight, if he sights it outright, he can decide, this is what I need to focus on because this is where you're weak, so I will beat you that way. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can achieve that basically two different ways. You can say, hey, I want it so that way every character has an egregious weakness. Oh, this character just doesn't have any egregious weaknesses. They just don't have any strengths either, right? And then what that character does is they just prey on the weaknesses of everybody else. Yeah. As opposed to playing to their strengths, they play to their opponent's weaknesses. Or you just say, oh, this character's above average at everything. So they effectively are getting that same sort of... Yeah, that um, same sort of idea. Scenario. Yeah. This brings up an interesting concept. Um, you mentioned, I think, if I'm remembering correctly... There's been a few fighting games that have allowed customization. How's that usually gone? So yeah, there there was um, there was one game that I remember very clearly as having um, really trying something interesting with communi- uh, with uh, with um, let me uh, let me get my mouth right. La la li lo la la li lo. Okay, so there was a um, there were several games that actually did customization, but mm-hmm. there's only one that I can really think of that did it well. So let's hit the ones that that didn't do it so well first, huh? Um, sure. So Tekken versus Street Fighter. Tekken cross Street Fighter. Or rather, Street Fighter cross Tekken. Tekken cross Street Fighter's coming out later, folks. Don't worry. Harada will bring it to you. <laughs> but uh, Street Fighter cross Tekken, the idea that they wanted to do was they wanted to bring more variance to the game, right? And yeah. it was already a team-based game, so you had some that variance helps. there already. Yeah, right? that, that helps already. Yeah, um, and that's something I'll hit a little bit later. But um, the thing was that they went for this idea of gemstones uh, to to uh, change your character parameters, where you're okay. like, put this on your character and you're slightly faster. Put mm-hmm. this on your character and you're slightly stronger. This one does strength and speed, minus his, uh, minus his defense. Um, okay. And there were hundreds of these things. Uh, okay. And you could equip, I want to say, three... It's been a while. I think it was either three or five. In either case, you could equip you could equip a non-trivial amount of them to your characters when you think about the fact that you have two of them, which means that's six decisions on your um, that's six decisions on top of the first two that you made at the character select screen. Right. So what that amounts to is tos hate you as a designer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, tournament organizers. Yes. Um, tournament organizers look at that and say. Um, this is going to take way too long. We can't do customization. We're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and this is that's an issue that a lot of customization in fighting this games. This takes Smash Four. Yes, it did. <laughs> I wish that the customization for Smash Four was easier to do and required less less getting the moves. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the other things with um uh one of the forms of obfuscate uh, not obfuscation of um balance that shows up in pve that we can't use in pvp uh that concept of you need to you need to wait a while to get this or you get this randomly yep because you want to have all the options available as a pvp player you want to be able to do this stuff because the advantage always goes to the player with the most options but anyway um how, how much of an impact did that uh gem system have on gameplay it had a, a bit of an impact on gameplay but not enough to make you really want it. Yeah, it would seem to me that just changing parameters yeah, doesn't do much. It just it doesn't change how you play your character. No. So 
The Arcana Hearts. So this is the game that I thought did customization really well. And the reason is that, um, first off, it made it so that it was two decisions, because it was a one-on-one -on -one game. So you choose your character, you choose your Arcana. Um, so what's an Arcana? When you're thinking of a character you th uh, in a fighting game, you think of them as the tools they have, right? Right. So uh, I'm a grappler. I, th I grab people. I should, emphasis on should, have some way to deal with projectiles. Um, that's a personal peeve. But anyway, um, you should have those, right? But what if I don't? Well, there's an arcana that gives me a projectile. That's what arcanas were. They were move sets that you could append to your character to make them deal with stuff differently. So basically, each character had ballparking guess, like two-thirds of a move set, and then you picked up an arcana for the other third? Yeah, generally that was the case. Some characters were um, over-endowed, um, but... You know, that's uh, that's fighting game balance. This one was a bit earlier on, and it was in the, um, we'll call it Air Dash Fighter game uh, game style. Very high, a very high pace. Um, I mean, it was, I don't say, I won't say it was right on the heels of Guilty, Guilty Gear, but mm. it was earlier on, so the concepts of what balance even was is still being explored. Sure. But the general concept, I thought that was really, really interesting and really cool. Yeah, so how much so that had a pretty big impact I'm guessing with with the change like that per your decisions. Oh, most definitely. I mean, a change like that changes a lot about your gameplay and it forces the opponent to actually make new decisions. Um because just the just the concept of say having an arcana that allows you to ref, uh to eat projectiles, for instance, or an arcana that gives you a projectile that you can fire back at your opponent. Um, this adds a new thing to uh, a adds a new layer to your uh, to your gameplay style. So here's a question, uh, if you remember it: Who picked first, or did they pick their arcana simultaneously, or how did that work? So you picked your characters simultaneously, then you picked your arcanas simultaneously. Okay. So theoretically, the, the players could sit there waiting for the other person to pick first, so they could pick their counter arcana. Yeah, blind pick is something that we need to figure out how to do in fighting games. But yeah, you can counter pick. Counter pick is a huge thing in fighting games in general, so you just kind of have to deal with it. Right. <laughs> and and that to, to to be clear for people who aren't understanding what we're talking about, it's where you choose something that's going to be better uh, or good and effective against what your opponent's chosen, just based upon how they function. And counter picking is. Um, in anything that allows it tends to be a huge strategy, and you usually want to give, or it's a huge advantage, and you usually want to give that advantage to the losing player. Um, that's where, uh, for example, in Magic the Gathering, the player who loses gets to pick whether or not they want to go first or second for the next round, because there's a lot of impact that happens there. It's where in uh, competitive Smash Brothers, I think they usually have the loser pick the next stage. Yeah, that's usually the way it goes. Um, because the stage is actually a way of getting a lot of variance. Different characters like certain stages and really dislike other ones. And so there's there's things like that where giving the option of choosing, to some extent, choosing what the environment is going to be, yeah. or having an influence on what the environment is, to determine and help adjust what's good and what's effective is usually, when, when that is an option to be made, is given to the losing player to help even things out. Yeah, actually also, while I'm, while I'm thinking about it, just a shout out to uh, Rolling Thunder for also doing, um, doing customizational, uh, customizable um, attacks and moves in a way that's mm. um, 
palatable. You are definitely ought to check it out. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about this concept of what does the environment incentivize, right? What What is good in an environment? Mm-hmm. And this is um, often very subtle, and it's based upon the mechanics. Uh, grapplers often, in fighting games, just hanging on that for just a moment longer, Yeah. Um, often have a lot of problems because the the way that the environment works and the way that they're set up don't mesh well. Yeah, because... When the the very concept of the grappler is built around a certain lack of tools, um, or at least the original grappler, the original grappler, um, going back to the geefster, he is built around the idea that he doesn't have a hadoken. Um, and for that's projectile for those of you who don't speak Street Fighter. Yeah, hadoken. Uh, I love hadokens. <laughs> um, but. Uh, he doesn't have a Hadoken. Uh, he doesn't really have a. He doesn't necessarily have a reliable anti-air special. Um, you can try and find a, a normal that does it, but that changes. <laughs> Let me guess. He's also pretty slow. He, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the standard things about being a grappler is that you're slow, and you don't have a projectile, which means. How do you deal with getting to your opponent? Ooh, ooh, and it's even better. Your whole strategy revolves around grabbing your opponent and throwing them away from you so you can chase them again. Yes. You see, you're, you're fighting yourself. You are actually fighting yourself as a grappler, <laughs> oftentimes. Such a perplexing design. So, the, yeah, so you see, this is, this is one of my problems with grapplers. And I know all of you, all of you grappler loyalists out there, you're probably going, boo, boo, boo this person. But, um, I'm calling it like I see it, because Geef in particular, um, he had that problem of, what do I do against projectiles? Now, he got Banishing Flat in later games, which allows him to kind of close the gap better, which helped. But he still he still falters, especially since uh, like in the most recent Capcom Cup, Capcom Cup I feel it was very, um, very well shown. Now, granted, it was... The world's best Zangief player versus the world's best Shotokan player, or rather, the world's best evil Ryu, Daigo, the beast. And, you know, you're not necessarily expecting, um, expecting someone to beat him, but this is the top four. This is the last match. You're expecting it to be something crazy, amazing, of course. And Snake Eyes gets 3-0'd. That, that's the Geef player? Yeah, uh, that's the Geef player. A man very near and dear to my heart. I mean, I don't know him personally, but he's really good at this character. Like, the first time I saw him play, I'm like, you're doing things that I, I could not even conceive of with this character. He does combos? What? Keith does combos? Holy crap. Um, but, yeah, so that was crazy, right? I was like, this guy is amazing. I really wanted to see him get there or have a really good fight with Daigo. Mm-hmm. Thing is, Daigo knew... Daigo knew right from the start, I have all of the tools I need to beat this character. It's just do my Hadokens, stay at this sp- stay at about one and a half to two character lengths away, and whenever he jumps, he's going to telegraph it's going to telegraph because he can't change his jump arc. And he doesn't mm-hmm. really have anything to deal with that, so sure you can. And there all of your options are covered. He has to get to you, but the problem is that he ha- he has to get to you, so you know exactly what you need to do. And even if he does get to you, he pushes you away as soon as he does it. Yeah. 
and Snake Eyes tried his hardest. Um, he did, and he's one of the best players out there. But Skill was not the issue here. Yeah, it was, I personally feel, the Geef betrayed him, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. So this is kind of an example of how the environment or, or the setup of a thing can incentivize stuff, but there's there's uh, changing tracks a lot here. Um, I want to go over and talk about a game called Lichdom, because this game does a really great job of highlighting exactly how mechanics can influence gameplay and what's effective, and therefore the concept of what does balanced mean, right? And it, it is such a good example because it's such a um, clear one, I'll say. So the, the game itself, to give a little bit of overview, because I don't know how many people played it, is the, the creator of the game was like, I like mages. Mages are really cool. But you know what sucks? All these melee classes, making the mages have to be bad so the melee classes aren't awful. Mm-hmm. You know, they're shackled with all this mana or limited cast per uh, day or, or... All sorts of things to make yeah. them be able to be sorted easier. Exactly. So that way, you know, the sword characters aren't like, oh, I can't do anything because the mage just, just destroys everything, right? So he's like, how do I make a game where mage good? So made they made a first-person shooter, and they did some interesting mechanics to make it that way you're not just walking all over everything like it's nothing. Um, and one of the things that they did, uh, they have an interesting spellcrafting system. A little too complicated, but that's I'm going to talk about that extensively later, not this podcast. So you can craft these spells with different properties, and so you can do some effects that will build up the amount of damage that other of your spells will do without actually doing damage themselves. Um, this is something called mastery, which is basically an invisible charge. Think of it kind of like filling up the enemy's gasoline can they have strapped to their backs. So that way, when you hit them with a spell that does damage, it explodes mm -hmm. um, and increases the amount of damage they do. So you're like, okay, that's great. You can see why you'd want to do that strategy. You, you, know, you want to fill up your enemy's gas can, coat it with uh, an extra layer of, I don't know, kerosene or kerosene. Yeah, sure, why not? And then you want to light it. That makes a lot of sense. But there's other ways that you could play the game, too. You could make um, a damage-over-time spell that is this big pool of fire, for example, or lightning, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, and you place it there, and then you use another spell that, like, traps the enemy in place so they can't move, and they're stuck there in the damage-over-time, and they're always getting hurt, and ah, you're chipping away at them rapidly. Or you can uh, equip what was referred to as a ray, which is basically... Um, Think of like force lightning where you hold up your hand and a stream of lightning is continually flowing forth or um, something where you're holding up your hand and a jet of fire is continuously... A flamethrower. Mm -hmm. That's the word. That's the word I'm looking for. That works kind of like that, where it's like it piles on damage over time and builds up and stuff. So the problem that this game runs into is um, they have something called synergies, which are very high-level spells that allow you to build up a meter... And when that meter's full, it allows you to cast a super spell. And it requires two elements. You get access to three elements at a time, and it basically is combining two elements. There's a good example. Uh, there's an element called Kinesis. There's an element called Fire. Kinesis is kind of... When it's trying to do damage, it pushes things around or can trap stuff or make them float. Things like that. So what happens when you combine Kinesis and Fire? You pull a meteor out of the sky and slam it into your enemies for massive damage. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is a very powerful spell. It does a huge amount of damage. So synergies are really strong. You want to use them. So how do you use them? You charge up a meter. How do you charge up the meter? You overkill enemies. What does overkilling an enemy do? It basically says you get added to your meter the damage you dealt to the enemy minus the amount of health that they had when you dealt that packet of damage. 
So if you think about this for a moment, what does this do? Hmm. Well, it makes damage over time really bad because it doesn't charge your synergies, which are very powerful spells that can get you out of really sticky situations. And they're bad explicitly because they're really not good at dealing extra damage. They cannot deal overkill because they're killing your enemy within a very narrow margin of their health because it's dealing rapid single packets as opposed to one really large one. <laughs> so the game ended up incentivizing heavily non-damage over time strategies. Strategies that where you're setting up the enemy with a lot of this mastery filled gas can and doing other stuff to, to coat their, their gas can in kerosene or other flammable materials and then you're hitting them with one of these damage spells for like huge amounts of damage. And that strategy is not necessarily any faster per se than I have a pool of lava and you are not leaving it until you're dead. Like, there's not necessarily a huge speed difference in those strategies per se. But there is a, there's the feel of it though. There is the feel of it. And there's also the synergies. Yeah. And and that's the point that I'm getting at, is that the way synergies were designed required you to kill enemies, which meant that you could not recharge them during any sort of long protracted battle against a single enemy. Yeah. And they incentivized designing your spells such that you were building up these things that would make single huge damages, right? Mm -hmm. So this incentivizes a certain way of playing the game. The design of the synergies and their power and the fact that you want to use them incentivizes a certain sort of gameplay. Right. Now, if the synergies weren't useful, they wouldn't incentivize the sort of gameplay. And jumping back because it's such a good example of it, to fighting games for a second, you see this all the time with their meter system Almost and supers. Definitely. Yeah, as is actually rather interesting because with uh, within the fighting game, the whole idea, um, the whole idea of the super is also, of course, this thing that you spend a bunch of energy on to do a lot of damage or do something really flashy. That's indicative of you know what your character is all about, right? Right. It's a character moment as well as an attack. Yeah. So the the thing is that you spend you'll gain this energy by fighting your opponent, dealing damage to them in some way, shape, or form, and using attacks, right? Yeah. But one of the problems um, that we see in a lot of fighting games is this is one meter. You're going to be using it for multiple things, not just your super. In, re uh, in actually more recent designs, or rather ever since Third Strike, to be exact. That's Street Fighter Third Strike, correct? Yeah, th Street Fighter Third Strike. Thank you, Sanyanter. So in Street Fighter Third Strike, the... Uh, the concept of the EX move was introduced. This idea that you could spend a portion of your super meter to do a supercharged version of your move that um, of one of your special moves that was either more efficient, did more damage, or was safer. Mm. Generally speaking, these were pretty cool to use. But then this begs the question of, okay, I can use my meter for that, but do I really still want to fill it all the way up to use a super? Yeah. And... To an extent, some of the characters actually had supers that you really wanted to use. One of the nice things in Third Strike, which actually hasn't really come up in the later Street Fighter games, now that I'm thinking about it, um, was the concept that your meter was multi-layered, so you could get multiple levels of super, so you actually had a ton of energy to spend. And there wasn't something to use when all of them were all the way full? Not when all of them were full. Um, you could only spend a... 
uh, a meter's worth. So, like, if you were Ibuki, for instance, and you were using number three, because that's the only super that you would use, because the other two were bad, and we'll talk about that. Um, that level three had five had five stocks. Yes, it had five stocks, which meant that you could stock up five uses of that super over the course of the match. Sure. Um, and that also meant that you could actually pretty freely use your EX moves and still be capable of dealing a decent amount of damage with your more useful than others super. <laughs> right. And, and this actually highlights, I think, part of why this, uh, this is a, a problem of they've given you a resource and then they give you multiple ways of spending it. And there's just some that are significantly better than others. Most definitely. So stepping away from Ibuki... Because she had her two other supers are passable. It's just the third one is the third one you can actually combo into, and that's what makes it really great. Mm. Um, moving to Makoto, she has two supers that people would use: um, Seichusen Godansky, which is just you punch the opponent in the crotch, and then you punch them in the chest, and then you knock them into the air, and this can lead into an extra combo. Um, or Abare Tosanami, which you jump to the other side of the screen and do a 45 to 30 or 60 degree angle arc, dependent on how you input it, and go and hit the opponent with your foot. And again, this move also had the concept of you could tack a hit on at the end of it. Right. And that's kind of an important part, right? Almost definitely. Um, this is something that uh, a lot of Guilty Gear supers uh, actually miss out on. Um, right, especially with the Roman system. Yes, with the Roman canceling system, which actually does a similar thing to EX, although yeah, it's le I would say it's less well implemented, I will say. And, and would you say then that part of the reason why supers tend to be bad is because you can do, in most fighting games, recently at least, you could do other things with your meter, and the other things that you could do with your meter extend your combo and supers can't compete with the amount of damage you get out of extending your combo. Yes, um, this is definitely this is definitely true in um, any uh, any air dash fighter, um, which Guilty mm -hmm. Gear is. I still consider Guilty Gear to be the king of. I know Blaz Blue came out, but it's made by the same people. So Guilty Gear, yeah, love it. Um, <laughs> but I digress. Just to put a cap on the Makoto example, her third super. Uh huh. So that super. Um, it didn't do damage. Okay. And it, um, it didn't really afford you any nice properties. What it did was it made you turn red. So that's a property. Yay? Hey, I mean, um, yeah. Red's a cool color. Uh, so it made you turn red Act and... warm. You lose the ability to block. That seems like a terrible decision. It, it, it's, it's actually a horrible decision. You will lose so many fights this way. Yeah, the person goes to punch you, and you're just like, I, I, no, I'm going to take it. <laughs> right into the face. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so you gain the ability to do a great amount of damage, but the problem is that you can't stop anything that's coming at you. So it's it's all offense with no defense? Yep. Except for, like, the parry system in Third Strike, which I think that was what they were going for, was you need to, you need to be the best parrier ever. The problem was that due to the nature of how fast frames are handled in Third Strike, you have to be at the absolute pinnacle of parrying to be that good. 
Right. And at that point, are there other characters that are more useful to be? Yes. What a shock. Yes. It it turns out there are other characters that benefit from this more. But moving on to the Guilty Gear example, one of the things about that particular system and why in that game in particular, a lot of supers don't see use. Um, part of this is because, as uh, as Sienter said, your super is generally going to end your combo. It's not going to extend it. And the amount of damage that you could get out of that super ending your combo might not might not necessarily result in the same amount of damage that you could do for get for doing a combo twice, which is what the Roman cancel does. Right. And so fighting games incentivize you to keep your combo going as long as possible because that A, allows you to apply damage to your opponent, and B, prevents your opponent from applying damage to you. Exactly. The Roman cancel is this idea that the way a combo stops is you start doing your things and then one of your moves has the frame data that says nothing follows after this. I see. So it basically be like, Using a little bit of terminology here, you're, you'd have your startup frames, your active frames, and your end lag. Right. So and startup is when you're beginning the move and it's, the animation is starting. Active frames is, while, is where you can actually hit things, and then ending lag is while you're waiting for your character to go back to neutral so you can do things again. Exactly. So a move that will end a combo is something that has a lot of end lag to it. For sure. So what a Roman cancel does is it puts you back into neutral state regardless of what you were doing. Yeah. And so from the neutral state, you can immediately just go to the startup frames of whatever it is that you have next. Right, which lets you keep going on your combo. Yeah. And so that's why Roman cancels are so useful in games like Guilty Gear, where comboing is a way of life. Right. So if a fighting game system was set up that way, either it incentivized ending combos at some point, or um, there are or no sort of cancel things, and or other ways to spend your super meter, then using, um, or you could potentially have other ways of spending your super meter, but they'd have to be very specific. Yeah. Um, more defensive ways, I'd think. Yeah. But where your sort of your strongest offensive option is to spend your super meter on a super. Yeah. Then they might be good capstones to combos. Yeah, most definitely. And there's uh, there are a couple games, there are a couple of fighters that manage to do this. One of my uh, one of my key examples here would be the King of Fighters, um, specifically King of, King of Fighters 13. But King of Fighters gets around it by saying that we have two meters that we use, one that specifically does all of that canceling stuff, and another one that we use for super, and then modes that allow you to do both of them ad nauseum. Right, so that basically means that you're not using up that super meter on other things, so it's always available to you. Exactly. It also is, uh, it also, now that I'm thinking about it, it also did the thing that Third Strike did, which is mm. you can layer your super meters. I see. Five stocks. Um, the only other games that really did that sort of layering, per se, is the crazy, wild and crazy world of Marvel vs. Capcom. <laughs> yeah. We'll uh, get into that in a moment. <laughs> so, you want to talk about something that's crazy. It's that game. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is, to tie this back into what we're talking about, which is balance, what we're talking about here is how the environment and the mechanics of the game dictate what's good, and that means that certain actions in the game might not be at all useful. And that's, 
that's kind of an imbalance of the environment, right? If part of the experience is supposed to be, and players do crazy flashy combos and amazing supers, but you set up a system that says, and there's no reason to use supers because it's better to just reset your position and combo more. You've kind of made it that way. If you're trying to accomplish players using supers, you've failed, right? Yeah. Because they're not incentivized to do that. They're incentivized to prolong the combo as long as possible. Indeed. And that's in some ways, kind of a balance failure. Yeah, it's a balance failure. And I mean, it, what it means is that you have this, you, you've allotted a slot in your game to this idea that people won't use, and you've also allotted dev time yes, to that. absolutely. And what's also kind of sad is the amount of dev time that gets allotted to trying to balance these moves against each other and that sort of thing and the whole of the character when they're just, they have to be so astronomically powerful to warrant using them over more combo. Yeah. And I mean, there is a there is a core point to that idea that, you know, the combo, it really does define a lot about our current ideas of fighting games. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's something that I do feel needs to be challenged. Um, yeah. Is that idea that it's not just about consecutive hits. There's more stuff to it. It's really about player interaction with each other. Yeah. Uh, moving on from this topic, though, of things that are bad because they don't have, an, I guess, a reason to use them. Yes. To things that are bad because you can't balance them at all. Uh -huh. um, the, the example that we're going to segue into here are uh, resurrection mechanics in fighting games. Yes. So this is a really, really difficult thing to balance. And by that, I mean... Nearly impossible. <laughs> exactly. It's either too good or awful. Because the first time that I saw a resurrection ability, mind you, uh, was on a boss character. Uh, that's, a, that's a big hint right there, but, you know. Yeah. Um, and the whole, the whole thing was like, you get there and you're like, I'm beating the crap out of this guy. Oh, man, I beat him. And then he falls on the ground. He's like, ooh. And then he's like, resurrection and he just gets back up and all of his health bar fills up and you're like what the crap as a player and you know this is the this is the thing that um this is the thing that they usually want out of their boss characters they want them to sure. be you know cheap as hell yeah super intimidating and kind of dumb yeah it's it's that thing of where once you know how to really play the game well you'll probably kill the crap out of them but um because they're controlled by an ai and not a player if they're controlled by a player, they just kill the crap out of you every time. Right. Um, Which is why when they're made available to the players, they're either a nerf version or abandoned tournaments. Yep. But yeah, resurrection. So there was one... Uh, the, the big thing about this is when you're looking at the environment of a fighting game, what is, it that you're, what is it that you're really trying to incentivize? You want your player to go and beat the other player into the ground. And you want, and that's what's going to, well, after a fashion, um, that's what's going to give them that feeling of enrichment, of reward, is when they're right. like, they go, I hit them, I lowered the vitality, it took me, it took a lot of work to get them there, I got them there, I did it, I feel good. Right. What does resurrection do? Resurrection reverses all of your hard work. It does. Now, one thing about Gil's re resurrection from Third Strike, um, he was the first version of this I saw, Okay, was that his was interruptible. It was basically one of those, bo it was one of those specific things that you put in for a, uh, for a boss uh, ah. character. Where he's just like, 
He does it, and if you are quick and on the ball, you can get in there and you can hit him and stop him from getting all of his health back. Makes sense. Um, I remember because I sped run that game with every character. Really uh -huh. like <laughs> Um We move on to a character who was not a boss, mm -hmm. who got resurrection, along with several other tools. I see. So, if you watch the Marvel vs. Capcom 3 circuit at all, uh, you might know of a character who shouts, I can't control it! And uh, revives uh, with a vengeance and destroys entire teams with her wrath. Is it Phoenix? It's the Phoenix. Okay. Um, but the thing about Phoenix and why me personally... Now, granted, Marvel vs. Capcom 3, this is a game that is... Well, let's face it. It's not really all that balanced. <laughs> it's about being over the top and having too big of a roster to be able to effectively do anything with, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I will say that they did manage to do one thing better than they did in Marvel vs. Capcom 2, which is um, at the top level of play in Marvel vs. Capcom 3, there are more than six characters. Yay! Um, it's like the roster... Now, granted, there are... I think five characters that tend to appear on most teams, but at least it's that. It's not just those five characters all the time. Right. But anyways, Phoenix. So the thing about Phoenix was that they wanted to replicate her, her idea in the comics, right? Mm -hmm. That idea that um, you kill her and then um, she loses control. The, the dark Phoenix takes control of her and she becomes the most ridiculous several comic books spanning problem of course so how do they how do you do that well you're basically trying to make a broken character at this point <laughs> yeah um so broken they, being slang for it makes the system not work well because it's too strong for the environment exactly so the way that they attempted to balance this character was saying okay so the normal form of this character is very very weak can't really do too much with her okay so, useless front half? Yeah. And it's like, if you keep her out in the front line, you can try and do really well with her, but what's generally going to happen is you're going to make a mistake, and then she's going to die because she's paper. She's just paper. I see. But the kindling, as it were, for the Phoenix's rebirth. Exactly. Uh, but if you just keep her on the sideline and build up five meters with someone else in your party... There's meters again, folks. Then you have what is essentially a bomb that punishes your opponent for killing you. Is there anything that they can do about your meter buildup? Uh, there's one mechanic in the game that can remove your meter. However, that mechanic requires you to play, basically play rock, paper, scissors in a situation where you can hit all, where you can hit rock, paper, and scissors almost at the same time. I see. Basically... If you have, um, if you can rotate the stick really, really fast uh -huh. and mash buttons, um, you'll stop the you'll stop the strategy that would normally uh, that would normally remove the meter. I see. So it's not actually useful. Not entirely. No. Okay. But with that in mind, so you get a dark phoenix on the board. Well, what do you do? You have to kill her because you have to win. Right. And. No, if you kill her last, she's still going to come back as Dark Phoenix with all of her HP and all of her wrath. And, and her super buffedness. Yes. And being that this game also happens to have X-Factor, 
which is the thing that makes it so that your last stand character can stand a chance against a team of three. Oh, dear. And Phoenix can already stand a chance against a team of three. Oh, dear. It basically means that Dark Phoenix rises and destroys worlds. It's Kyogre. So what happens here? So what happens here is we have the situation of where we have this thing that can basically says, when I appear, I win. Right. Unless, you know, you make a horrid mistake, but that's a skill miss. That's a skill mistake. Sure. How does this get dealt with? The player makes it so that you don't really get to play with her. Right. Like, you kill her extremely quickly, and then it's gone. Right. So you basically have to take care of the Dark Phoenix the moment it rises or you're doomed. Yeah. You either take care of the Dark Phoenix the moment it rises, or you kill it before you can build meter. Okay. Um, which means that you've basically, you have to take control of the match as soon as Phoenix is out there. Mm-hmm. The problem is that this disincentivizes one of the more key, more important parts of play, that, like this character. Disincentivizes right. uh, one of the more important parts of fighting gameplay, which is the tit for tat, the mm-hmm. players fighting against each other. If you're playing as, if you're playing as Phoenix, you don't want to interact with the other player. Right. All you really want to do is keep her on the sidelines until it's time, let her die, and then kill them. Right. And granted, it takes a little bit of skill to play the character. Sure. But that's to be expected in a fighting game. That's the base level. Right. The important thing is looking at when you're when this character is played at the potential that it needs to be played at, mm-hmm. how does it how does it work out? Right. And so what ends up happening is it, it practically speaking, is too strong or doesn't get to do anything. Yes, because if we pitched it so that Dark Phoenix was no longer the, a really, really powerful thing, but you still had to kill her, you still had to, you basically still had to build up meters to bring her back. Yeah, you had to do all that work to make Dark Phoenix appear. Yeah, it, would st- it just wouldn't work, it just wouldn't feel right for the character. Right. But on the set, on that same point, if we made normal, would it be Phoenix, worth it? Yeah, if we made normal Phoenix really good, and then Dark Phoenix was even better, that's just absurd. Yeah, it's that means that's that's the best character in the game, folks. Absolutely, there's no trade off. Like, there's no reason not to use the character that's a good character that becomes the best character. Yeah, and so that's a really really hard balance to make. That's why I call it impossible balance. Yeah. Impossible. Improbable? Impossible. It's like, and the reason why I call it impossible, that sort of balance conundrum impossible, is because you you can't put it in this, the, the environment is such that there's no sweet spot for it, right? Where it's good enough, but yeah. not too good. Because it's either not good enough or too good, right? And so there's this, just this micron barrier. You put it on one side and it's too good, and on the other it's not good enough. Yeah. And... This is a this is something that you know it shows up in a lot of games, but uh, it's it does it's, it's something that at the end of the day you have to you have to again come back to your environment and say does this break the environment? Can the environment handle this being here? Yeah, and then there's another type of useless effect, um, which I think falls into a similar sort of category as this impossible balance, uh, which is it's not useful against normal enemies. And you can't use it on the enemies that it would otherwise be useful against. Um, we're presented with a, an example of this from Golden Sun. There's a status condition that's a death status condition. What happens with it is you apply it to an enemy, and after a set number of turns, the enemy dies, right? 
The problem is, most battles resolve at least as fast as that condition would defeat the enemy, if not faster. So it doesn't actually do anything for you in a normal random encounter or whatever, but all of the bosses are immune to it. So it would only be useful against the bosses, but you can't use it against the bosses. So it's not useful. There's nothing that it's useful against, right? So you're stuck looking at this thing, and you're like, why would I ever use this? The thing that's useful against, I can't use it on, and the thing that I can use it on, it's not useful against. Of course, there's always the interesting little conundrum with things like this, which is the enemy can use it on you, which points can be quite obnoxious. Yep. Uh, I have run into that quite often in games. Um, Builders 1 had this happen quite a bit, but anything where enemies and players get the same set of tools, or there's some shared tools, that you can find tools that are really bad on the player, but when you have a bunch of enemies all spamming them, they're really obnoxious to really powerful. Yeah, and I mean, this is something in particular, one of the common status effects that I can that I see this happening on is just poison in general. Yeah, usually it defeats things too slow to be useful, but it's really obnoxious when it's put on you. Yeah, and, you know, the things that you would want to use it on where you're going to do a long-form battle against, they're immune. Yeah. Well, it's like going back to Pokemon. In PvE, there's the poison condition that would be useless to use, or even toxic's near useless in most PvE. Uh, for those unfamiliar, poison does what, like a 16th? Yeah, it's... um. The value has changed over the years, but I believe yeah. it's the 16th now. Uh, 16th of your max HP due at the end of your turn. Something like that. And then, what, burn is like a 10th? Burn is, yeah, burn is a 10th, and oh. it has that secondary effect that makes right. it awesome. Um, but the reason why poison is not especially useful is toxic is an elevated version of poison that you have to apply through specific moves that apply toxic. So you can't have be poisoned and toxic at the same time. And toxic starts off weaker than poison... But it doubles at the end of every... Like, every time it applies damage, it doubles for the next time. So it's like, it starts off at, I don't know, like... I don't remember what the numbers are, but... Just going off of the 16th, it's like, a 16th, 8th, what, uh, quarter, half, all of it, sort of thing. And it starts off... It's it's slower than that, but... The, the basic idea is that it ramps up how much it does at the end of each turn. So it's really useful in PvP especially against a Pokemon that's spamming a heal move that restores half of their max HP, because Toxic will eventually power through that where they can't keep up. But Poison does such an insignificant amount of damage, relatively speaking, that especially since you cannot simultaneously apply it with any other degeneration condition yeah. of that variety, that there's just no reason to use it, right? And in PvE, where Toxic is too slow because you're, everything needs to be damaged and just straight doing damage yeah it it really gets lost by the wayside and so that's another sort of situation where you've got this effect that's just not great yeah because there's other things that eclipse it yeah and speaking of of pokemon and effects that aren't great there's moves that adjust your stats so there's positive versions that increase your own stats these are quite good there's negative versions that decrease your opponent's stats these are quite bad mm -hmm. and the reason why decreasing your opponent's stats is bad um, there's actually two reasons for this. The first is that the uh, it's really easy to get rid of them. This is more of a PvP reason. Mm -hmm. um, switching your Pokemon gets rid of stat changes, so just changing will revert your speed back up or your attack back up or down or whichever way you adjusted it. Um, in general, in PvE, these are just too slow to be worth it because, again, the priority is just fainting all of the opposing Pokemon as fast as you can. Yep. 
But in PvP, stat downs, another reason why they're not very useful is because while the multiplier is reciprocal between stat ups and stat downs, the percent ad adjust is not. So what I mean by that is a stat up, one stage of a stat up increases, uh, applies a 3 over 2 multiplier. So normally your stats are at, say, a 2 over 2 multiplier, which is 1, which means nothing happens. 3 over 2 is a 50% increase, right? So it's plus 50%. You take half of it and add it on. Right. A stat down inverts that formula, so it's two-thirds. Right. Now, for the observant among you, you'll notice that 2 divided by 3 means that you are decreasing it by 33%. So that's plus 50% versus minus 33%. Do you notice a slight disparity in strength here? Possibly a 13%? Uh, yeah, something like that. 17 17, yeah. So the effectiveness of increasing your stats is much higher that way than the rate going down. Now, obviously, going down by 50% or going down by 100% especially mm -hmm. is going to be very, very, very way too strong, especially once you're hitting that, that 100%. But just flipping that multiplier, that fraction, doesn't quite put things at parity. Yeah. So... Taking a turn to lower your opponent's stats doesn't gain you very much relative to how easy it is to get rid of them. And giving up a turn to do that is just not worth it, right? When you could be doing something more useful with that turn, such as putting up stealth rocks. Yep. So we've talked about a lot of different uh, things with balance. Uh, impossible balance situations where there's a paper's edge. One way it's too strong, the other way it's too weak. The way that customization impacts balance where you know you can adjust what tools you have you can pick the best version of a specific tool for what you're trying to do and those sorts of things uh, and how lacking customization can mean if the environment's bad for you you just can't do anything and the environment being made up of mechanics and those sorts of things how tools that you can have to balance stuff in pve aren't necessarily available in pvp things like scarcity or secrets um, things being rare. Scarcity and rarity, by the way, are a bit different. Rarity means it's not likely to drop. Scarcity means you can't find much of it. So the difference uh, is really easy to see if you compare, say, a very powerful weapon that's rare to drop versus you don't get very many healing items. Yeah, yeah. So there's th that difference there. And then, you know, balancing your tools and your tool chests that you're giving the player among the other tools you're giving them, especially when there's limited choices to be made with resources. Yeah, and making sure that when you give your players a tool chest that um, you're... Well, I mean, the implied intention with bringing, uh, giving the players a tool chest is that you want them to, to look through that chest and yeah. find things they want to use. And there's, there's an important point here, which is that not every tool has to be for every player, but you want all of your tools to have a player. Yes, and that's, that's a very key, very key part of it. Well... Well, it's not necessarily that everyone's going to enjoy using bows and arrows. There's exactly. going to be somebody that can use bows and arrows, and they will enjoy it. And you want them to feel like they're able to be effective with that. And that's, again, going back to what the, the guy that made Lishton was saying. He felt like he couldn't play the sort of mage he wanted because it kept having to be reined in by everybody using swords, right? Yeah. And, I mean, that's a key... That's another point with uh with balance and design is right it's as much a part of how you tweak your numbers as what you decide to put into your system in the first place yeah and so balance 
this is kind of the big thing. Balance has to be evaluated in the whole context of the environment of the game. And there's a lot of things that will help define uh, good balance in terms of you need to look at what is the developer trying to do. Maybe the developer wants swords to be bad in the game. They want bows or magic to be really good. Yeah. Right? So they're trying to incentivize a certain thing. And then you have to look at the player's perceptions and how aligned that is with the developer's intentions. And if the players actually like the game that the developers have decided to make. Yes. And that's that's very important. Uh, that's very important, especially in our age now where you can update these things as they come out. Yeah. So if you discover that the game that you wanted to make is not the game that players want to play, maybe you should consider listening to the players. But you also have to keep in mind that we all have our own sets of biases, right? And so we have to be careful of the biases that we bring with us when we're evaluating balance. And we also have our own personal, you know, it goes into our own personal preferences, right? Mm -hmm. And they skew our perception. Our skill skews our perception, especially. Oh, most definitely. So... As a developer, it's important to be able to evaluate your game in the context of different skill levels. Most definitely. Um, because this is, a, this is a very important thing. Inval evaluating your game in terms of the different skill levels and evaluating your game in the terms of what are the skill levels that you want this game to be played at. Yeah. And, and making sure that people that are coming in with no skill, i.e. your new players are able to feel like they can play the game. It's it's difficult, especially with a game that has a high mastery threshold. To um, make a, the, uh, a game that has a high skill ceiling. Right. Um, that you, to, It's difficult to make a high skill, skill ceiling have a low enough skill floor and still have that experience of learning it. Right, because what, what ends up being, and this is a very difficult thing to balance, is not boring your experienced players and not overwhelming your new players. But yeah, you can get more into that one on our uh, on podcast number 2. Yes, the uh, the difficulty versus hard one. Yeah. And and just keep in mind that PVP and PvE, that is player versus player or versus games and player versus environment, uh are two different environments and they have to be evaluated differently. Each one has its own needs and therefore its own balance. Exactly. I think that about wraps it up. Uh, I'm not sure that I have anything else that I want to go over. Do you, Redcoat? Uh, I don't really have much else I want to go over. Uh, just thinking about a few things I'd like to say. Uh, first off, I love video games. Indeed. Yeah. So I wanted to I wanted to just give a shout-out to that. I love video games. Yeah, you heard it here first. Redcoat loves video games. And I want to see him get better. <laughs> yeah. And that's... Again, that's one of our core. That's one of our core parts for these uh, for these podcasts. We want to talk about not just um, elements of video games and gaming, but we want to talk about implementation. Actually, speaking of that, implementation concept uh, brings something to mind that I think is very important, and that's to evaluate your tool set for evaluating your game. And what I mean by that is, uh, you may look at your game from the specific lens of your past experiences, right? Um, the idea of how your game works is going to be based on your past understanding of, of video games. So having a broad expanse of different types of games that you've played or have gotten at least familiar with can be really, really helpful for understanding how you need to approach balancing your game. This is something that can be seen in uh, 
MMOs, for example. Guild Wars 1 is the one that I immediately think of. It's not quite an MMO, but the idea of needing to evaluate those skills a lot like a trading card game or a collectible card game because of the parallels there. And if you have never gotten familiar with how trading card game balance works, you're going to miss that sort of tool set, so you're not going to be able to evaluate skills that way. Yeah, and the this is a very important thing as a um, as a designer. In general, you want to broaden your horizons. You want to see not just things in the broader world of games, which, uh, mind you, that's really important, um, but things in the broader world at large, um, in in movies, in uh, in travel, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But that might be for another topic, probably. I think that wraps it up. So I'm gonna stand here, sign off here, and have a good whatever time of day it is for you. And this is Redco signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos. <laughs>